Good morning. I'm Dan. I'm one of the leaders here, and we're going to continue our walk through the book of Exodus uh, today. We're in chapter 26, and we are uh, diving into the part of Exodus that tends to be left out of children's Bibles. Plans for the first tabernacle, very detailed plans. This is the house where God would live among his people. Why wouldn't this be in a children's Bible? One man said this, I'm a builder, and this text is still not exciting. It's like reading a description of grass growing, one blade at a time. Today's scripture is 37 verses of detail about curtains and roof coverings and pillars of wood. Some of you graduating seniors might wonder, why does this have to be my last sermon? <laughs> and, and some of you, like for real, some of you struggling with doubt, whether you've been here for a while or you just wandered in, you might wonder, what do these details have to do with the problems in the world that seem so much more important? My goal here today is not to make boring verses exciting. My goal is to help everybody here understand that in these details is more meaning and more glory than anything else in your life that you enjoy more than God. Another way of putting it, better is one day in this text than a thousand doing something else. And uh, countless people throughout history gave their lives to preserve these chapters. These ones. God is just as present here as he is anywhere else in the Bible. Because this chapter is not just about God giving people a house. It's the continued revelation of a plan that has been unfolding since the beginning of everything to redeem the guilty through the death of the innocent. And this house plays a crucial part. It's where sacrifices would be made. And because of these sacrifices, God would come down and breathe life into people who are otherwise dead. It's a beautiful house. And Gene talked about the furniture last week. Talked about the ark and the mercy seat. Lampstand. And now here in Exodus 26, I'll be talking about the design. I like design. Kind of what I do. And all of these details mean something. All of these details connect to God's plan for redemption. That's your outline, in fact. First, we're going to see the problem, which is separation from God. We'll see that in the details. Then we'll see, second, the solution, which is being covered in sacrifice to God. And third, the payoff, restoration to God. I'm going to be bouncing around the text a little bit. So I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 6 and then moving to 31 through 37 and we're going to tackle those as a big piece. So, Exodus 26, verses 1 through 6, and then 31 through 37. This is God giving instruction for the tabernacle. Moreover, 
you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another and you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another and you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang on it four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the most, for you the most holy, the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. The hook shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. And despite my warning, some of you are already drowning in details. <laughs> so let me just help a little bit before we even begin to dive in. Okay, all the numbers and measurements that you read, I will not be focusing on those today. They are very, very important, but they're here and there throughout the whole chapter, beyond even this text. And I think all of that makes one little tidy point, and I'm going to get to that. But for now, that leaves us with a pile of curtains and veils and clasps and loops. And what do those have to do with redemption? Well, the first detail that I'd like to draw your attention to is the focus on colors. This is not simply because I was an art major. The author talks a lot about them. There are colors of blue and purple and scarlet. In fact, these three colors are mentioned a total of ten times in just 13 verses. So, important. I'm skipping gold because it's not used as a color. It's used as the actual material. So these three colors were not just picked because God thought they would be pretty. Red, blue, and purple had meaning to Israelite culture. We're going to understand culture here. In fact, we're going to neighbor Israel right here. We're going to get to know them. Why were these colors important? Blue was a color that represented divinity. Purple represented royalty. Some of you guys might have known that one. And red represented sin. In other cultures, that actually wasn't the case. But I'll get to that in a moment. Okay, here's the thing. Some of these colors were extremely hard to make. There was no Home Depot for this project. The color blue was first made historically from minerals like cobalt. If you little kid playing with crayons, cobalt blue. Um, 
Guess what culture first did this? Egypt. Egypt. Guess who left Egypt just recently? Israel. So they have blue. It was a very rare color. In fact, Egypt was one of the only ones to have it. In fact, some tribes at the time didn't even have the ability to recognize the color blue. Isn't that crazy? Now, the color red was typically made with clay, which Israel would have had access to from their Egyptian neighbors. They had a lot of stuff that they took with them, probably some clay pots. It was a little easier to make, but the uniqueness here, rather than the rarity, was what the color represented to the outside world. The color red represented action, bravery, and sacrifice. This is actually still kind of true. You use red if you want to like really get people's attention. I wore red. Look at me. I didn't plan that, by the way. Um, and those are all good things, action and bravery and all that. But to Israel, red represented sin. Isaiah one eighteen: Though your skin, though your sins be as scarlet. Scarlet used here it means red. So red represented sin, which was a bad thing. And what happens if you mix red and blue? Purple, a third color. Very, very economical. Since purple contained blue, it was very, very, very precious. The blue was super precious. And the red, you wanted to get it just right. So it was only used for royalty. Very valuable color. Worldly kings, and here's what this represented. Worldly kings were seen as divine, which is blue. They were seen as gods. And they were seen as men of action and bravery and sacrifice. Red, that's purple. But to Israel, red was sin. So it might have seemed a strange color to attribute to God. But we'll get to that later. And some of you guys are probably already way ahead of me. The point is this color scheme was not an accident. God is literally saying to Israel that divinity and sin and royalty have a connection. That's the first detail, color. The second detail is that these curtains and veils were designed to separate God from man. Why do you buy curtains in your house? Well, you, in some ways, it's, you're separating yourself from the sunlight that's trying to get in your face. But usually, I mean, a lot of girls I know, especially when I got married, it's like curtains are kind of pretty. In fact, some of them don't even do a job. They just kind of hang on the sides and they... Really? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. So these curtains, though, were thick and heavy. These were like multiple curtains kind of stuck together. This is less for decoration and more as a way to keep people out. Except for certain people. I would imagine maybe a small child wouldn't have even been able to get in if he wanted to. The third, and I think most loud detail, is cherubim woven into the design of the inner veil that separated the most holy place, where the ark and the mercy seat were kept. Cherubim, if you don't know, are angelic beings who serve God. And they're an important detail here, not because the chapter repeats the word often. In fact, quite the opposite. 
The word cherubim has appeared only once in the entire Bible before this. Do you remember where? Genesis 3. When God ships Adam and Eve out of the garden for their sin, the cherubim guards the entrance. This imagery communicated something very important. You can't just walk in here. There's a gap between you and a holy God, and you made it, and you can't cross it. All these design elements communicated God's divinity and royalty, not just the colors, but the rest of it, and the need for sacrifice, because though God would live among them, there is a gap. And sacrifice would bridge that gap. Point two, covered by sacrifices to God. We're going to read verses 7 through 14. And if you're wondering about the loops and the hooks, I'm actually going to get to that because it's mentioned again. So hang with me. 7 through 14. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. The eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. So now we're talking about the roof. If you can imagine, this is kind of a tent. Uh, it's not a solid piece of building material. It's a tent. There are two details in the eight verses here that I want to focus in on. There's a lot more. We're just going to hit on two of them. The first one might be kind of obvious if you're a regular, if you've just studied the Bible a lot. The roof is a representation of the sacrificial system. It's made up of many layers, which are almost exclusively animal skin or animal fur. And so many animals, again, probably provided by Egypt, would die for this tabernacle to even be built. We haven't even made a sacrifice yet. How many animals do you think have to die to cover this? I don't have an answer. It was just kind of rhetorical. Here's the thing, it's, it's, it's like if you walk in and you look up, the first thing that comes to your mind is that the way to God's presence is literally covered in death. What's even more significant about this detail is that this is already a theme. God's already shown this to his people. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden again. How did Adam and Eve get their clothes? What were the clothes? Do you remember? Cannibal skins. It wasn't the leaves anymore. Proper clothes that would last a bit longer. They were covered in the skins of animals. 
which God killed and provided for them. This roof is a literal continuation of that theme. And the second detail being communicated is a little bit more obvious, but it's nonetheless really important. Here's where I briefly touch on all the numbers and measurements I told you to not worry about earlier. Hang with me for just a second. In the whole chapter, the purpose of all these measurements is not just to be a stickler or not just to be like endlessly ornate. It's actually really practical. For example, the phrase single hole comes up in verses 6 and 11. All these precise measurements and the clasps and the loops was so that the whole tabernacle would be held together as a single whole. One sturdy unit that was also really, really portable. Why is this important? It's so that God would not just live with his people, he could literally go with them. God would not be a fixed place on the map that one would have to go to in order to meet him or have a spiritual experience. You can take it with you. That is very different than what Israel would have been used to. They had fixed monuments, heaps of stone, they had places of worship, but this one would not leave them. And God would be faithful not just to be with them, but to actually restore them. And that's your third point. Restored to God. I'm going to read verses 15 through 30. You should make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There should be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle. Twenty frames for the south side and forty bases of silver you should make under the twenty frames. Two bases under one frame for the two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, twenty frames and there forty bases of silver Two bases under one frame and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle, westward, you shall make six frames. And you shall make two frames for the corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners. And there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver. Sixteen bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. At the rear westward, the middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end, and shall overlay the frames with gold. And you shall make the rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan. For it that you were shown on the mountain. I saved the best for last. <laughs> First details. Anybody here like details? Anybody here keep up with all that? 
Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> what does this have to do with restoration? The focus here is in the last section is on the wood beams, which would form the outer wall as a frame. So you can imagine all of that instruction was basically so that you could get something that was rectangular, not the size of a football field, but think that kind of think that kind of uh, ratio of length to width. And um, this would form the outer wall as a sort of frame. So you could you could see in were it not for the covering. That's the point. It's not like a solid piece of plywood that you you know dump uh, dump a drywall over or something like that. This is like a frame that you could literally walk through were it not for the the covering. And the point here in the design was about so much more than just simply holding the roof up. Detail number one. Look at verses 26, 32, and 37. The beams are overlaid with gold. And um, there's, there's a lot to kind of dig into here, so I'll just hit on a few things briefly. If you can imagine these columns of wood overlaid with gold, what's being communicated visually is that these wood beams do not have inherent beauty. They are not inherently golden. Their beauty is provided externally. It was as though God could take something very perishable, wood, and make it imperishable, gold, by covering it. The second detail, after the beams were covered in gold, we read that they are to be laid into all these different foundations for support. Silver and bronze and gold and all that. And if you could look at it on a map, here's the uniqueness. The bronze foundation would be at the entrance. Verse 37. And then others would be cast in silver and gold as you moved in and closer to where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God would be. So, these beams were more precious the closer they got to God. Finally, one more deal, uh, detail, then we're going to start to put it together, connected to the gospel. If you can imagine the rectangular frame of wood forming the tabernacle, which was itself covered in layers of animal skins, how did you get in? It was the screen at the entrance. My point is, the framing, the framing you could get into were it not for this thick covering that you could not simply just cut your way through. That's the point. There is one way in. As, and though mankind was, as a whole, was kind of separated, a mediator, a high priest in this case, could bridge that gap, was the only one who could walk in. And inside was new life and restoration and God himself. So many commentators have connected the tabernacle to a literal recreation of what the Garden of Eden is. It's literally returning to paradise. But only one person was allowed in. If only there was a way everybody could get in. 
Well, see ya. <laughs> but for anybody who doesn't believe in Jesus, I literally would say see you and I would sit down at that point. <laughs> what hope do we have? Let me connect this to the gospel and then we're going to talk application. This, this text right here, which can seem like boring detail, exposes humanity's essential problem and the solution and the result. God wants to dwell among his people, but the standard is holiness. And Israel would build this tabernacle. We're going to get into that. And they would offer sacrifices. We're going to get into that. But they would continue to sin and continue to kill animals. And my guess is if there was no intervention by God afterwards, there would be no more animals and no more hope. The world would run out of animals before it would run out of sin. But God had decided long ago that he would send a king. And this king would not wear purple. This king would wear red. This king would literally put on the sin of the world only and then bleed it all out. Friends, if you haven't put it together, this tabernacle is a representation of Jesus. Hebrews 10 says this, Day after day, priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So he's the high priest, and he's the sacrifice, and he's the roof. And he's the little clasps and the loops holding all things together. And there's more. When Jesus died, the veil that only the high priest could walk through was torn from top to bottom. He's the veil too. That's pretty much the whole tabernacle, right? There's probably more. I don't have time. But friends, this is not wild symbolism. This is not a detour. This is not entertainment. This is Jesus loud and clear in the Old Testament. God's plan all along was to redeem the guilty through the death of the innocent. And all of this was accomplished in Jesus Christ. So how do we respond? The response is, as Jesus was the tabernacle, so are we to be the tabernacle. Be the tabernacle. You can write that down at the, the top. I know that sounds a little kind of cliche. Be the miracle and all that. Just hang with me. Be the tabernacle. Author Justin Taylor says this. When Jesus came, he tabernacled among us. He lived among us, God among us. And so Jesus spoke about the temple of his body, John chapter 2. And Paul also taught that because we are united to the risen Messiah, we are the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
So all I mean by be the tabernacle is represent Jesus to the world. Because they don't know him yet, so you're going to have to do for now. They don't know him. They would sit down after the hopelessness. You have to show them the hope. Here are three ways you can do it, and I'm just going to walk you right back through the outline. Number one, you yourself can boldly approach Jesus. In other words, if you believe in Jesus, don't act as though you are still separated from him. That's point one. Boldly approach Jesus. Uh, Hebrews 4.16, you can write it down next to this. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. A lot of Hebrews in this one. Hebrews is about Jesus. Is basically the subtitle is Jesus is better. So seniors, read that over the summer, please. Everybody else also read it over the summer. Read it today. It's great. Um, so Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near. What does that look like? Because like some of us, like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here at church, right? I'm kind of drawing near, right? What that means is do not hide or deny sin. Don't hide or deny your sin. What you're doing, what we do when we hide or deny sin is we're trying to take the curtain back together. That's really what we're trying to do. God doesn't, I'm too messed up. God doesn't want me, so I'll just tape it back up and I'll just kind of stay out of here, away from perfection. Don't hide or deny sin. Uh, As far as I feel like this ties in really well to neighboring too. Because a lot of people like, they don't even get the first part. (laughs) They don't even get the culture. How are they going to understand the Lord? How are they going to get this? Again, you have to show them, be the tabernacle. In other words, your neighbors need Jesus, not simply moral living. Not simply moral living. Because you, you're probably thinking, okay, if I want to win my neighbors, what I have to do is I have to be awesome and my kids have to not complain. I got a couple of like three parents just right there. I won't tell you who. Um, and that's what we do. Because if our kids are kind of complaining a lot, what we're like is like, all right, I'm just going to like get out of the Walmart and I'm going to leave as soon as I can. And I will not share anything with them. What we do is we put it on a moral level. Instead of basically saying like, yeah, you know, life's actually, you know, when they're like, hey, how you doing? And you have like the 10 seconds between them getting out of their car and disappearing into their house. And they're like, how are you doing? Say terrible and see if they stop. Seriously, don't say fine, especially if you're not. And if you are fine, tell them why you're fine. Your neighbors need Jesus. My guess is they probably think they have to put on some front and get dressed up just to come in here. Show them they don't. You go first. Number two, find your hope in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. In other words, you don't need any other covering. 
Remember, Hebrews 10, 11 through 12, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. I mentioned that in the Gospel Connections. So what does that look like? It looks like working for God out of joy rather than obligation. How do we do this? Because I know a lot of us are doing some really good, really hard work for some good businesses, some good ministries, or we're just pouring a lot of time and energy into this church. And so we can think, we're doing it right. I work for Christian ministry. I work hard for the church. I must be doing things correctly. How do we know if we're working for God out of obligation rather than joy? Ask this question of yourself a lot. Why do I work? Why do I work? So often we focus all of our energy on what we're doing or how much we're doing. And our encouragement or discouragement comes out of that. But instead ask the question, why am I doing this? Am I doing this so that people will like me? Am I doing this because I feel guilty? Ask yourself those questions and you'll start to begin to unpack motivations. And your third application is be made new by Jesus. As, the, as those wood beams were made beautiful and strong and precious by being covered in gold, and as the metal foundations were more precious the closer they were to God, so are we more like Jesus the closer we are to Him. And this will cause others not to see us, but to see God in us. This is kind of the positive result of what I was talking about in the neighboring aspect of application number one. You know, people look at you and they don't see somebody who's who's trying to um, earn their respect or somebody who's trying to just look like they have it all together. They see just something different. And they just kind of stop and they kind of look at you like, really? Like, really? And they might be kind of weirded out. That's okay. It's like we're talking about other world stuff here. It's going to draw people in. So in other words, as you're made new, and people around you now see somebody who used to be kind of this raggedy wood beam, knocked around and insufficient, now you're covered in gold and you're very different. Make it obvious where you got the gold. Make it obvious where you got the gold. There's so many instances in my life where if like, you know, like maybe I'm talking to my neighbor and like, praise God, you know, like I'm like, oh yeah, like I let my wife have like a mom night, you know, like I, I really want to like help her out. They're like, oh, that's cool. And I'm just like, yeah, I really love my wife. And I just kind of stop and keep going and conversation kind of drifts. Pagans can do that. Why do I love my wife? Neighboring. All of this is neighboring. And we get all this from 37 verses of wooden clasps and a roof. All of this is summed up, your third application, uh, once again in Hebrews. I'll read that. Uh, chapter 12 says this, Strive for peace with everyone. Love your neighbor. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let's be the tabernacle to one another in joy. Let me pray for us.
Dear God, I thank you so much for who you are. And I can think about who you are right now in my life, and that's good. But Lord, I thank you for who you have been since the beginning of time. I thank you that we're not the only church, we're not the only town that that gets to see the truth inside the scripture. I thank you that even around the world right now, there are many people who are becoming the tabernacle, who are learning to love you, to know you, who are learning to draw near to you joyfully, who are taking off the old self, and in doing that, many, many new people are coming to know you. Lord, let us start with this. Amen.